Hi, I'm Ada Yee. And I'm Nick Weiler. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week we invite a scientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week our guest is Kelly Zalikowski, a neuroscience graduate student studying dopamine and the reward system in Carl Dyseroth's lab here at Stanford. Thank you for joining us this week, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So, Kelly, we have here the makings of your favorite drink, a ginger Tom Collins. Is that right? That is right. Um, So can you walk us through how you make it? Absolutely. So I'm going to make it in my shaker for you. So first you fill the shaker up with ice. You're going to add two ounces of gin, which is, for those playing at home, an eight-count pour. It's a lot of gin. Three ounces of, I have here ginger-infused simple syrup, but you can just use regular simple syrup, which is one part sugar, one part water, heated up until it dissolves. We're going to add the juice from one lemon, which I have to cut in half, and juice. Mm. <laughs> she has all the equipment, <laughs> in case yeah. you're wondering. That is a wonderful sound. <laughs> Well, in January of last year, I got my bartending license on Ooh. the logic that they keep telling me to get transferable skills. <laughs> <laughs> Every graduate student needs to have certain transferable skills. Yeah, exactly. It'll never be out of a job. <laughs> so we're going to take that. How long does it take to get a, get a what do you call it, bartending license? So it's 32 hours of class, which um, is either over several weeks in the evenings or just two weekends. Huh. Uh, and then you have to take an exam in which they ask you about um, the components of various cocktails and what sort of... What sort of uh, what sort of alcohol is Tanqueray? What sort of alcohol is Bullet? What sort of they go on like this? What's the difference between a rye and a bourbon? What's the whatever? And then there's a pour test, in which you have to pour any twelve drinks they request in six minutes. Oh wow! Which Ooh. is quite the thing. <laughs> so um, I busted out some flashcard skills that I hadn't used since undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> pour it out of the shaker into the glass. Then top it off with club soda. That's an important order distinction. Shaker, then club soda. Really? That's something that you would be <laughs> tested on. <laughs> well, putting the, sh- the club soda in the shaker and then shaking it is <laughs> questionable. <laughs> yeah. So tell me what you think. All right. It smells delicious. All right. Cheers. All right, cheers. Oh, it's really delicious. Mm. I actually, I really enjoy ginger in my, in my drinks. Yeah. I think it's totally worth the trouble to boil the ginger in the simple syrup just to get it. Mm. And when did you learn about this drink? In your class or in your certification? Well, there's a whole family of Collins drinks that I learned about in class. So Collins essentially means um, whatever alcohol you're interested in plus sour mix plus soda water hmm. in a tall in a taller Collins glass. And so there's a bourbon Collins and a vodka Collins and a gin Collins, each with their own... Name so the gin Collins is also called a Tom Collins. Nice. Mm. The ginger that, is just for flair. That's actually fantastic because Collins is actually my middle name, <laughs> <laughs> and I like that kind of drink. So that Nicholas makes, Collins. Word. The Nicholas Collins. Okay. <laughs> you have to make it up. 
All right, Kelly. So uh, you're an expert in dopamine signaling and in the reward system. Um, and so dopamine is one of those things that um, neuroscientists, everybody outside of neuroscience, talks about all the time. But um, maybe it's also pretty much one of the most misunderstood neurotransmitters in the brain. So maybe um, you could give us like a large overview of how we understand the dopamine system at this time. Well, so that's really interesting. So neuroscientists actually have a long history of misunderstanding dopamine in the brain. <laughs> um, the beginnings of sort of modern study on dopamine signaling probably start with a study by Oldson Milner in 1954 in which they were putting stimulating electrodes into a rat's brain and trying to elicit responses and I think accidentally stumbled upon a role of the dopamine system. So they, this, was, this was all the rage at the time, just sticking electrodes <laughs> yeah. in and seeing what happens. Exactly. This is like the chocolate chip cookie experiment of neuroscience, one of those <laughs> things you're trying to do something else but you came up with something wonderful. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so what they discovered is that if you put the stimulating electrode too close to dopamine neurons, a rat will press a lever repeatedly, just thousands and thousands and thousands of times, rather than drink water, rather than eat, rather than take care of its young, until it's just bodily exhausted to keep getting this electrical stimulation. And so for a long time, for, you know, 40 plus years, neuroscientists thought that dopamine was the pleasure chemical. This must be a pleasurable sensation. And the sort of next big advance in our understanding of dopamine came around 1998. There's a man named Wolfram Schultz who is studying dopamine neurons in macaque monkeys. And in his setup, what he's doing is that he has a macaque monkey sitting in a chair and the macaque is thirsty. And so thirsty macaques really like juice. <laughs> and what Wolfram was doing was that he would just on a random basis give the monkey a drop of juice. And he's recording from the dopamine neurons in the monkey's brainstem. And what he saw at first was that the dopamine neurons fire more when the monkey got this unexpected drop of juice, which fits pretty well with what Olds and Milner already found, right? If dopamine's the pleasure chemical, then the neurons that release dopamine should fire more when the monkey gets something pleasurable. Right, and the monkey loves juice, so that mm -hmm. makes sense. Exactly. And then he made the experiment a little more complicated. He said, instead of just randomly giving you juice, I'm going to shine a light, and then exactly a second and a half later, you're going to get this drop of juice. So light, second and a half, juice. Light, second and a half juice. And the monkey, after doing this a few thousand times, learns very well that after the light, he's going to get a drop of juice. And then something interesting happens. So Wolfram is still recording from the dopamine neurons. And now the dopamine neurons aren't firing for the juice. They're firing for the light. So they're doing something a little bit uh, different from what you would expect based on the Olds and Milner experiment. Now the dopamine neurons fire more for a cue that predicts reward. So does that mean that the light is pleasurable? Um, it might mean that the light is pleasurable, but the... I guess it's hard to say, right? Like, I, it's hard to ask the monkeys. Um, yeah, so the, the going interpretation for that actually is that the dopamine neurons are doing something a little more complicated than just cueing or just encoding reward. Instead, what the dopamine neurons are doing is encoding something called reward prediction error. So what this means is that you're cruising along and you're not anticipating anything, and then you see this light, and suddenly you have a cue that predicts reward. You have this positive reward prediction error. The other experiment that uh, Wolfram did that sort of confirmed this or made people more strongly believe this hypothesis was that after he's done this to this monkey a couple thousand times where you have the light, a second and a half juice, then he does light, a second and a half, no juice, which is just 
harsh for one thing. But <laughs> poor monkeys. <laughs> poor, Not fair. Poor monkeys. And that's exactly what he saw. So when the dopamine neurons are sort of clicking along at a slow rate, the monkey sees the light, pop, 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 pop. And then there's a second and a half. And then when the monkey's supposed to get his juice and doesn't, the dopamine neurons go totally silent. Okay. Huh. So now what you have is a positive dopamine signal when the monkey sees the cue that he's going to get something he wants. And then a negative dopamine signal when he doesn't get it. Which is much more complicated and perhaps more interesting than the original Olds and Milner dopamine equals pleasure hypothesis. Um, And since then, other people have made this even more complicated by showing that some dopamine neurons also encode um, painful stimuli or obnoxious stimuli like a puff to the eye. You know, you go to the eye doctor and they puff you in the eye. So some population of dopamine neurons seem to just encode anything salient or surprising. Hmm. So it's a little bit more about sort of prediction than about what what the stimulus actually feels like. Yeah. So people in uh, artificial intelligence like to call it something like a prediction error signal, and people not in artificial intelligence call it something like a learning signal, uh-huh. which is maybe a little more interpretable. <laughs> um what does that mean for the original Olds and Milner experiments? So the the rats were pressing this lever to get to get some dopamine stimulation. Yeah. So the distinction that a lot of people in the dopamine field are interested in right now is the distinction between is something reinforcing or is something pleasurable. And this is something that addiction neuroscientists are really interested in because, you know, the pleasure that people derive from drugs sort of declines over time, but people are still really motivated to get them. Right, and the cues that predict drugs aren't themselves bringing a lot of pleasure, but boy, they motivate you to go after those drugs. Hmm. And dopamine seems to be really involved in addiction. Right? So we're interested in the difference between rewarding and reinforcing. So something that you may have experienced is that neuroscientists sometimes use to describe reinforcing but maybe not rewarding is something like a tip-of-the-tongue phenomenon. Right? Where you're like, you're almost there, you're almost there, you keep trying, you keep trying, you keep trying, but you never quite get it. That's the reinforcing bit. And then when you finally get it, that's rewarding. Huh. Okay. So it's, it's, you're almost there. And then there's this sort of satisfaction of, of accomplishment. Yeah. Okay. That's really, that's really interesting. One question that I have about, um, neuromodulator systems. So my, my understanding is that when the, when the dopamine system gets activated by, um, whatever the stimulus is, it basically is, it, it's a small nucleus in the brainstem, right? That's right. And it sends uh, axons throughout the brain to many different targets. That's also true. And so when that one nucleus, when cells in that one nucleus fire, they can have effects that are very broad ranging across the brain. Do we, do we understand sort of what the different targets are and, and um, what different kinds of effects that those have? We are just beginning to get into that because we're sort of just breaking the canon that all dopamine neurons are the same. And sort of the lead research on this comes from two places, as far as I know. One is um, someone you interviewed recently, which is Dr. Rob Malenka here at Stanford, and he has a postdoc in his lab named Stefan Lamel, mm-hmm. who's been doing really great research showing that dopamine neurons that project to different areas of the brain, so dopamine neurons that project to the amygdala versus dopamine neurons that project to prefrontal cortex versus those that project to the nucleus accumbens, do different things. They fire at different times. Um, and the other important distinction is that what the is that the dopamine neurons might be talking to all these downstream areas in the same ways, but those downstream areas um, interpret that signal and do different things with it. 
Mm. Right. So, so you mentioned the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of um, fight and flight response and executive control and some understanding of reward and 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 so on. So, what what do we think the dopamine neurons are doing in these different, the dopamine signals are doing in these different areas? I think perhaps the most mysterious signal is the dopamine signal to the amygdala. No one's really quite sure what's going on there, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> The dopamine neurons that project to, in particular, the nucleus accumbens or the bottom part of the striatum seem to be the ones that are most closely tied to uh, reward and addiction. So if you do a lot of cocaine, um, you're going to see changes in the strength of the synapses that are in the nucleus accumbens in almost every drug of abuse that we study. Whereas the neurons, the dopamine cells that project to the prefrontal cortex those seem to be the ones that are um, firing in response to anything salient. So whether it's positive, whether it's negative, just so long as it's surprising, your top-down control systems are getting that signal. So what I'm getting from this is that there's, there's very, very diverse effects of dopamine, but why just use one transmitter to modulate all these effects? Is this, is this something, are we coordinating something here? Or Yeah, well, there's maybe two different answers. So one is that if this is the fundamental approach or avoid, or this is the fundamental learning signal in the brain. There's probably lots of different areas of the brain that are interested in that signal. Uh, The other potential answer to that is that there are multiple different kinds of dopamine receptor. So Hmm. just because um, the dopamine signal is reaching all these different places doesn't mean that the downstream neurons are all hearing the same thing. In fact, if you split the dopamine receptors, there are five types of dopamine receptors, cleverly named D1, D2, D3. Okay. Um, And if you split them, we have D2, D3-like and D1-like receptors. Um, The D1 group, those cells, when they get a dopamine signal, they're more likely to fire an action potential themselves. So they're excited by dopamine. And cells that have the D2 receptors are inhibited by dopamine. So dopamine can actually have opposite effects in the downstream neurons based on which receptors they express. Hmm. And even just within one region of the brain, you can have both types of receptors. Huh. So, yeah, so I like the way that you put that, Ada, which is that it's sort of, there's a signal that um, the dopamine neurons care about a particular type of phenomenon in the world, things that are surprising, possibly could lead to a positive result, but that different parts of the brain are then going to have to do different things with that information. I mean, one thing that I think is not seems not well understood yet in neuroscience is just the role of neuromodulation in general. I mean, a, a huge amount of neuroscience is focused on the excitatory and the inhibitory signaling mm-hmm. that there's computations going on and that neurons are listening. They're getting positive input saying you should fire more and negative input saying you should fire less. And somehow this ends up computing things and coming up with consciousness and art and mathematics and all those things that you like. <laughs> But there are also these neuromodulators that can have very diverse effects. And so it's not just that, you know, one area of the brain is specialized in understanding language. um, And so it has a particular type of circuit that does that. But there are also, I don't know, how do we how do we understand the the um, the way that evolution has designed these modulators to keep the brain, I don't know, focused on important types of, of environmental stimuli? You know, it's an important question from another angle, which is that a lot of the people 
who are moving brain science forward from the side of theory, so people who like to explain the brain in terms of math or in terms of electrical circuits or in terms of artificial intelligence, this might be where they're having a lot of their trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the brain is not just a wet computer, (laughs) (laughs) right? So you have these positive inputs, you have these negative inputs, and those are easy to model with resistors and transistors. But when you're dealing in probabilities, when you're saying this neuromodulator makes this neuron slightly less likely to fire to this input, but it listens more strongly to this other input, you have to really understand that intricately in order to model it in silica, Hmm. right? And so I think if we continue to brush aside the role of neuromodulators and say that, oh, well, that's mushy, what's really important is the excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters and whether the neurons are firing more and if we can model it as an electrical circuit, if we brush aside the role of neuromodulators, which deal more in probabilities, then it's going to be, I think, slow going on the AI and computer as a chip side of things. I guess it sounds almost like neuromodulators are making our brain more flexible. So there are more gradations by which these basic circuits can actually work. It's one way to think of it. Um, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, one prominent neuroscientist who sits on my committee and studies the role of dopamine in the striatum just said to me three days ago that the role of dopamine in the striatum is a f- mystery. (laughs) Right? uh, The experts speak. The experts speak. Um, So one of the the projects that you're working on right now is is actually about this very thing, this sort of idea of risk-seeking and risk-avoidance and how uh, different individuals might have different preferences for, you know, how much are you motivated by looking for, you know, possible reward and how much are you motivated by avoiding possible losses. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, well, first, what do we know about differences between individuals in terms of risk-seeking? Um, and then describe a little bit about how your research is going to address this. So we know that in the general human population, the vast majority of people exhibit risk-averse behavior, which is to say that if I give you a balanced gamble, so I say either you can walk away with here without gambling or... You have a 50-50 gamble where half the time you're going to win $500 and half the time you're going to lose $500. Most people walk away, Hmm. right? Even though the expected value or the mean outcome of those two options is the same. Oh, so the mean value is nothing. Exactly. Okay. Hmm. So the mean value is zero. You either walk away with zero or you take this 50-50 shot at winning or losing $500. Okay. Most people just take zero for sure. And in fact, they do these tests in people where they try to say, okay, well, how big does the upside have to be before people are willing to accept that loss? And the average person, the upside has to be twice as large as the downside before they're willing to accept the gamble. So it would have to be, you can either walk away with nothing, or the gamble is 50-50 shot at at $1,000 or losing $500. Okay. That's the tipping point for the average person. Sounds appealing. See, <laughs> um, maybe we're just risk seekers. I don't know. I, I think I probably would walk away. <laughs> That's so funny. But there is a minority population of people who are risk seekers, and you know, this is an interesting question: Who are these people? What makes them risk seeking? What are they doing with their lives? Um, <laughs> seeking risks. <laughs> exactly. But it turns out there are some biological markers for this sort of thing. So. Related to dopamine signaling, there is an allele of, there's a variant of the dopamine D2 receptor gene, 
that some people have called the TAC-A1 allele. And this variant of the D2 receptor gene decreases the amount of the receptor that's expressed in the striatum by 30 or 40 percent. So it's a lot. It's a big difference. And those people tend to be much more um, risk-seeking, more, they're more prone to addiction, to alcohol, to opiates. Um, and they're also more prone to obesity, which is interesting. Huh. Hmm. So, so basically, because they express dopamine receptors differently, they have a different attitude towards risk. Exactly. Wow. So, and, it's, and so that's very simple in a way. Yeah. And that is, it's that sort of line of research that led me to my thesis project. So I'm working in laboratory rats where in just like every, every other animal population that's been studied, the vast majority of rats are risk averse, but there is some small subpopulation that's risk seeking. And because we can do experiments in rats that are um, too high risk or sort of unethical to do in people, <laughs> um, we can do these more um, molecular level, cellular level experiments to try to parse out why are some of these rats risk seeking and is there anything we can do to change their attitude? The ratitude. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm making T-shirts that say that. <laughs> so, in, I mean, in humans, we're talking about risk seekers. We're talking about, you know, gamblers or venture capitalists or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. What is what is the um, – who are these rats? <laughs> <laughs> so these rats that are in my care, they um, they really like things like – chocolate and they like things like sugar water they like sweet sugary things they will do anything you want for a fruit loop seriously (laughs) um, and so what these rats do is that i train them so that they have the option to press one of two levers over and over again and if they press one lever they get the same size sugar water reward every single time and that's the safe lever those are the ones who are just you know i'm I'm just gonna have a you know Low-key job. I'm just going to get a regular paycheck. I don't, I don't need any I want, excitement I want in my the life. American dream just to have. Right. <laughs> just it's a sure bet. I pick them up in the morning, pull them out from behind the white picket fence. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the other lever is it has the same mean value, the same average value as the safe lever, but three-quarters of the time it's just the tiniest drop of sugar water. Just to let them know that they, you know, did in fact press the lever. It's not broken. It's not broken. And one quarter of the time, it's this enormous payoff. And so uh, some very small population of the rats chooses that lever 80, 90 percent of the time. So they really like fail, 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 win, fail, fail, win, fail. Yeah. So they're either serial entrepreneurs or graduate students. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. So tell us about your experiment. So you you work in Carl Dysroth's lab, so that means you use optogenetics to control <laughs> the brain with light, and that's exciting. So how do you how are you attacking this question of how why these rats are risk seeking um, using that using those experiments? Yeah. So what this optogenetic technique lets me do is to um, pick out the cells that I'm interested in. And in this case, because of all the evidence from humans, we're looking at cells that express the D2 receptor. And then I can say, all right, well, I want to express a protein in those cells that lets me tell them exactly when they're supposed to fire or tells them exactly when to be quiet. And that way, if I train these rats so that they can gamble over and over and over again, but I can say, all right, I want the D2 cells to fire a whole lot right when they're about to make their decision, or I want those cells to be completely silent when they're getting the reward. 
then I can try to parse out, okay, at what point in the decision-making process are these cells' activity important for driving the decision? And so what we... So when can you actually manipulate what the rats are going to do? Right. So another way of saying that is, um, you know, maybe there's some points in the task where the activity of these cells doesn't really matter very much, and I can slam them as hard as I want, and it doesn't really matter because the rest of the brain is not listening to those cells. But maybe right before the rat makes his decision, or right when he figures out how big of a reward he got, maybe the activity of those cells is really important just right at that instant. Hmm. To figure out whether he cares about getting the juice or, you know, the, the surprise. Yeah, exactly. And so so what have you seen? Have you been able to, to you know, make those risk-seeking rats, like just humdrum rats? Or <laughs> what have you been able to do? <laughs> yeah, so so far what we're seeing is that if you take those risk-seeking rats and you stimulate the dopamine, neur- the D2 neurons, the ones that are listening for losses, right when he's about to make his decision, that those risk-seeking rats make far fewer risk-seeking choices. So we are, in fact, making... <laughs> the risk-seeking rats into more humdrum, like, <laughs> sort of rats. Yeah. Um, and can you do the opposite? Well, we, we're able to do that with drugs. And so, in fact, I've been giving my... One, one of the very first experiments we did was that we train the rats in this task, and then we give them the same dopamine agonist drug that we give to the Parkinson's patients that causes all these behavior problems. Oh. And, in fact, rats that were choosing the risky lever only 5 or 10% of the time switched to choosing the risky lever 90 or 95% of the time. It was a huge effect for anyone who does behavior. Like, (laughs) it was an enormous effect. And so that made us more confident that, you know, we could use rats as a model for this behavior because not every human behavior translates perfectly to lab Mm. animals, but this one um, seems to be working. Hmm. Cool. So you've now got control over gambling behavior. (laughs) Um, What what does this teach you about, about the way that, the way that reward works, the way that dopamine works. I mean, so it seems very similar to, to human behavior. Does this help us, um, help us understand ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're going deep here. <laughs> another big deep question. Um, I think part of what this research says is you might expect that it's the actual experience of the reward right in the moment that's driving people's behavior like just the drinking down of all that sugar water, the coins spilling out of the slot machine, and that's what's driving people's behavior. But it seems like the most effective time to stimulate the neurons, where you can have the biggest effect on rats' decision-making, is actually right when the decision is happening, even if it's just a second or two after they got all that reward. If you stimulate during the reward, you can have a tiny effect on the rat's next decision. But if you stimulate while they're thinking about it, um, that's when you have this very large impact. So I guess, I mean, to me, that makes me think of two things. First of all, in the beginning, we were talking so much about all the confusion about, you know, at what stage of decision-making those neurons are important, and I guess you're helping us figure that out. But also, like, if we had to intervene with somebody's poor decision-making, now you're telling us that, you know, you have to be there at the moment a little bit, maybe? That's jumping a little too far ahead. Yeah, but also that that you want to be there as they're thinking. It's not just that, like, you've got to affect the the stimulus itself, but it's a process of, of evaluation. Yeah, so maybe it says that some sort of drug that just flattens people's affect or something might not be the way to go. Hmm. Right. Just dampening the experience of winning and losing overall doesn't impact their decision-making that much. Um, 
Okay, Kelly, so we're now going to take a little break, play our game. Um, we've decided that we now have a prize for our game, which is that you get another drink. Um, <laughs> um, so the game is called Not My Field, um, and basically we are going to we're gonna read to you three titles of uh, scientific papers, and you have to determine which of those three is a real scientific paper and which two we completely made up. Oh, good. Uh, and there are going to be three rounds to this game, so you just have to get two out of three. Are you uh, are you ready to play? Ready as I'm going to be. Okay, fantastic. Ada, <laughs> hey, do you want to go first? Sure. Okay, round one. So, so each of these have a theme this time. Uh, so the first theme is booze, which good. is appropriate. All right, so I'm going to give you the three. So A, the title is Wine Before Beer, a comprehensive investigation of the relationship between order of consumption of alcoholic beverages and subsequent levels of intoxication and consequent, oh my God, I can't even say this, vasalgia hangover. Okay. B, glass shape influences consumption rate for alcoholic beverages. That's the short one. Okay. C, past the fermented berries, social consumption of ethanol in the American black bear, Ursus americanus. The question is, which one's real? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with A. A. Yeah. Okay. The answer is actually B. Ooh. Um... A, A sounded like it should be real, right? Like that rhyme that we all know. No, uh, B. Okay, so the this is actually from an article in PLOS One uh, two years ago, 2012, and the abstract reads, high levels of alcohol consumption and increases in heavy episodic drinking, binge drinking, are a growing public concern due to their association with increased risk of personal and societal harm. Alcohol consumption has been shown to be sensitive to factors such as price and availability. The aim of this study was to explore the influence of glass shape on the rate of consumption of alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages. And the conclusions were that participants were 60% slower to consume an alcoholic beverage from a straight glass compared to a curved glass. This effect was only observed for a full glass and not a half-full glass, and was not observed for a non-alcoholic beverage. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I thought it was just like... Look, we are disproving yeah, this study. Actually, true. We're completely disproving yeah. this. Ada is drinking from a curved glass and is not doing her job <laughs> in drinking this Oh, we're kind of. She's drinking from a concave glass. Yeah, that's true. It's a I little think bit that's different. what they're talking about. So, I don't know. It's a curved glass. No, I don't know. Um, participants also misjudged the halfway point of a curved glass to a greater degree than that of a straight glass. And there was a trend towards a positive association between the degree of error and total drinking time. Mm, so if you want to get people really drunk, give them some curved glasses. <laughs> All right. Okay. So you didn't, you didn't get round one, booze. That's okay. We've got two more rounds. The second round is anthropomorphism. <laughs> I specialize in anthropomorphism. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So number one. Chickens prefer beautiful humans. Number two, pretending to be a bat improves echolocation performance in humans. And three, measuring feline IQ, strong effects of variable motivation. Wow. (laughs) How do you pretend to be a bat? That's excellent. (laughs) I'm going to go with C. C, measuring feline IQ. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll read you from the abstract. We trained chickens to react to an average human female face, but not to an average male face, or vice versa. In a subsequent test, the animals showed preferences for faces consistent with human sexual preferences, (laughs) obtained from university (laughs) students. This suggests that human preferences arise from general properties of nervous systems rather than from face-specific adaptations. I don't... Face-specific adaptations... 
We discuss this result in the light of current debate on the meaning of sexual signals and suggest further tests of existing hypotheses about the origin of sexual preferences. But what I take away from this is that the chickens are checking us out. <laughs> Maybe. <Kinda> creepy. <laughs> Maybe it's like the counting horse. The chickens are watching for oh, yeah. your reaction. Like, yeah. yeah, I wonder. They have they've done a clever, a clever chicken experiment with this. That's very. That's I very. Funny. Double blind. This is why. Yeah, we was have... this double blind? <laughs> exactly. This is why we have big Nobel prizes. <laughs> All right. Well, you've got you've got one more chance. You've got one more question. Okay. All right. Round three. The theme is medical mayhem. A. Manipulation of fractured nose using mallet and champagne cork. B. Self-administration of Elmer's glue correlated with attention-seeking behavior in pre-adolescence. <laughs> And C, sense and sensuality, comparative pheromone profiling of males versus females using Maldi-Toff analysis. Jesus. <laughs> that should be easier than it is. <laughs> so what did we have? What was the first one? Manipulation of fractured nose using mallet and champagne cork. That's horrible. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm hoping you made that one up. <laughs> so she seems doubtful. I'm gonna go with C. C. Maldi-Toff analysis. All right. Reading from the abstract, uh, we describe an alternative method of manipulating fractured nasal bones. Sorry. <laughs> Cruel, right? Us- using a surgical mallet and a champagne cork. This method enables accurate fracture reduction with minimal skin trauma by affording the surgeon a high level of control. Well, this- I'm feeling, but be- I'm feeling better now that I know that it's a surgical mallet and not like a rubber. <laughs> giant. You can either drive tent stakes or correct someone's nose. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I'm I'm sorry you didn't you didn't get any of those, but it's all right. You're in good company because Craig Heller had exactly the same experience. <laughs> and you can have another drink anyway. It's fine. <laughs> we're, not, we're not looking. Was it was was the prize that you have to have another drink or that you oh that I don't you know don't get another drink I don't, I don't remember you might as well have another drink. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I wonder. I feel like we. I feel like we need to. We need to adjust this game a little bit. It's getting a little too. I high. think. I think we're getting too creative. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> yeah, because in the playing at home version, I've done okay. Oh, really? There's yeah. a playing at home version. Well, when you're listening to oh. our show, of course, as I, know, <laughs> as I know you all are. <laughs> it's a self-fulfilling. Story. Yeah. All right. Um, so while you're having your second drink, um, mm-hmm. I'm actually I'd love to go back in time and talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is squirrels and nut caching. Now, I don't know exactly how this became near and dear to my heart, but I don't know. I heard Craig Heller talk about it a while ago, and I wrote a blog post about it. But squirrels, squirrels, are, squirrels hide. Are cute. Squirrels are adorable, <laughs> um, and pretty uh, Machiavellian, right? They are, and. So the question is, so squirrels go around hiding nuts in the forest to save for later, presumably, and then go out and, and but how, how, how well do they remember where they put these nuts? And, um, yeah, can you, can you tell us a little bit about squirrel foraging and how you got interested in this? Sure. So let me first say that a lot of my undergraduate research was on squirrel caching, which is squirrels hiding things, and squirrel pilfering, which is squirrels stealing from one another. Um... <laughs> And the method that we used to study this was that we got all these undergrads in a room. First of all, I called every pecan orchard in Texas asking for 50 pounds of unshelled pecans, (laughs) which 
garnered a lot of confused responses. You know, what what on earth do you need with 50 pounds of unshelled pecans? <laughs> and then you explain that you're going to feed them to squirrels, and it just gets better from there. So <laughs> what we did is that we tagged each individual pecan with a little metal tag. We went out and buried them in the forest and marked the locations very carefully on a map. And then for weeks, we went out every day with metal detectors to figure out which ones the squirrels had stolen from us. <laughs> which is quite the thing. Um, Were the squirrels watching you hide them? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so they have an unfair advantage once they figured out what was going on. Um, they were like, yes, these humans <laughs> giving us food. And squirrels actually, you jest, but squirrels are actually very aware of whether other animals are watching them catch. Because they're going through all this effort to find acorns and walnuts and pecans and bury them and then if somebody else is watching them that squirrel will presumably just go and dig it up right then and eat it Hmm. right it doesn't do you any good to hide your acorns if another squirrel is watching Hmm. and so squirrels have been known and shown to um if they see you watching they will bury a rock instead what yeah so they are deceitful (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing in addition to being machiavellian (laughs) little creatures um (laughs) Yeah, and so <laughs> that's what we were up to. What proportion of them do do they remember? You know, I don't know that we have a good answer to that. Well, I, I found this amazing quote yeah. uh, when I was researching about this before. <laughs> this was uh, from Cuppy, 1949, uh, which I've, naturally you're familiar with of as course. a squirrel researcher. Yeah. Squirrels have been criticized for hiding nuts in various places for future use and then forgetting the places. While squirrels do not bother with minor details like that, they have other things on their mind, such as hiding more nuts where they can't find them. (laughs) That's excellent. Well, there's sort of two angles on that. One is that it seems to be the case that squirrels remember generally where they left something. It's that phenomenon where you walk into a room and you go, I know my keys are in here somewhere. Right, so they, (laughs) they know to within maybe three feet where they left an acorn. Um, And then from there they go sniffing. Hmm. So squirrels do better at finding their old caches if, say, the soil is wet, right? Hmm. Because it allows the smell signals to travel more readily. Hmm. Um, And so people who study wild squirrels in laboratories burying things in sandboxes have discovered (laughs) 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 that if the sand is wet, the squirrels do better. Hmm. Yeah. And squirrels, I mean, it's not that they're completely random. They do remember they get irritated with you if you steal caches from them, right? So So we asked Craig Heller when he was in about this phenomenon where when squirrel, when ground squirrels hibernate, they lose lots of their synapses. And we think in neuroscience that synapses are very important for having (laughs) memories of what you have done and what has happened to you. But do you, I don't know if you studied squirrels that hibernate, but do you think that they would remember where they put things the next spring are the are the nuts that they're hiding for use like tomorrow or next year yeah so largely they're for use over winter once all the tree fruit population has sort of dried up so once the oak trees have stopped dropping acorns and the pecans have all come off the tree and there's nothing obvious to eat right here right now they go searching for their old caches and then presumably in the spring more fresh food comes up i see but i was studying squirrels in central arkansas where there's really no need to hibernate unless you're a real rather weather wuss. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Winter is really the pleasant time to be in Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and in fact, tree species, I think, sort of count on squirrels to forget some fraction of the seeds they bury, right? 
This is actually a study we were doing when I was an undergraduate. And I went, I was really interested in evolution and in co-evolution, which is in, which is the case where two species that might not be related at all evolve a close relationship with each other particular flowers that are specialized to be pollinated by bats or by hummingbirds, and then both the hummingbird and the flower evolve to become more and more matched with each other. Well, this also seems to happen between trees that bear nuts and squirrels that bury nuts. And so what we're seeing in the literature was that squirrels, so squirrels are clever, and so they take more valuable caches, so nuts that have more calories and more fat and they're larger. If they hmm. if they find a more valuable food item, they bury it farther apart. Hmm. Right, and so if you have a bunch of tiny acorns, you can bury them sort of close together. But if you find, like, big, juicy walnuts, you're going to bury one, but you're going to bury the next one really far away because you don't want to risk that if somebody finds your first walnut that they can just sort of dig around and find your next one. Hmm. And so they will bury acorns at some distance from each other. They'll bury pecans even further apart. They'll bury walnuts further apart than that. And it turns out that they bury walnuts at the distance you would bury walnuts if you were planting a walnut orchard, which is kind of nutty. That's crazy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nicely done. (laughs) Waiting for that one. Mm -hmm. And so one project that we tried and didn't quite succeed at was to see whether this was also true for pecans. So is this sort of a general principle of squirrel tree evolution are the trees manipulating the fat and calorie content of their nuts to get squirrels to bury them at a particular distance since that seems to be the primary means of these (laughs) seeds getting planted or is that just like a happy coincidence with walnuts or is the the size of an oak determined by a squirrel's preference for where to bury (laughs) it i like to think that the plants are in charge it's sort of a more scandalous hypothesis <laughs> but um well plus it's one squirrel that's planting a bunch of different tree species right hmm. um so yeah but it was just it was interesting question to be chasing down and so what did you find with the pecans we didn't find anything with the pecans because what my professor and i thought was that we would need to germinate the pecans in order to test this hypothesis which is make the pecans ready to sprout but pecans are really complicated and they need sort of like a freezing period and a period where they're wet in order to germinate. And so what this meant was that I had like cold, wet buckets of pecans all over my dorm room for months. (laughs) (laughs) My roommate loved me. (laughs) But that they didn't really germinate and that experiment didn't really go anywhere. So I'm still curious about the squirrel-pecan co-evolution hypothesis. And so the, I mean, the real question is like, what kind of dopamine rush the squirrels get when they find <laughs> their nuts versus when they misplace their nuts? This could all come around full circle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was actually wondering about urban squirrels. All these squirrels in the city. Do you know of anything that they have adapted to live so well in the city? I know. I know some of them back in Berkeley. They would just steal my bagel. Like they just walk up and take. It. Oh, that's hilarious! <laughs> I've seen them steal hacky sacks at the University of Illinois. Are you what? serious? Those little beanbag things that people kick around. Yeah, I saw a squirrel just out run, of the air. Run into the middle of a hacky sack circle, scoop it up, and run away. <laughs> and then here go like fifteen hipsters chasing <laughs> the squirrel across the park. Um, I think, unfortunately, in urban environments. Squirrels mm. eat more refuse than I maybe see. is good for them. Yeah. You know, you've seen the squirrels with the raccoons all emerging from the dumpster behind the cafeteria. <laughs> mm. and, and, I, and, you know, people feed them, which is probably also not optimal. Mm-hmm. But 
Interesting. Yeah. So you made it. You made a comment about how you you like you like the the plants being in charge as sort of a um, a more scandalous hypothesis, which I liked. <laughs> so I I understand that you have ideas about about plant evolution, why it's or plant biology, and why it's so important to study, even though you are a mammalian biologist for the most part. Oh, it's true. I love botany, and actually, when I started as an undergraduate. I definitely wanted to do uh, botany and botany research. I've spent more time reading Peterson's Field Guide to Edible Wild Plants than I've had my nose in any other book, for sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just think it's really interesting, and the details stick with me. You know, I can tell you, well, this species of elm tree has hairs on the undersides of the leaves, whereas Mm -hmm. this tree is smooth, you know? (laughs) And I don't know why those details stick with me, Um, you know. In the post-apocalypse, the botanists are going to win, you know. <laughs> We're going to be able to find all the food and all the medicine and everything else. Right. Once once aspirin is no longer available, you can go and find your willow bark. I know what that. that tree looks like. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I just think it's fun. Plus, my metronome, my internal metronome ticks fairly slowly relative to other people, in particular relative to, say, birders. You know, birders can watch birds flitting around and they're like, did you see that red flash on the underside of the wing for just that second before it landed on the branch? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I didn't. But plants just sit there as long as you want while you <laughs> figure out exactly what subspecies of sweet pea you're looking at, which is great. I understand that you went to China as an undergrad to actually study plants, I guess, but more specifically to look at, you know, Western versus Eastern medicine, which I guess, you know, plants are kind of involved with. (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, so one reason I was interested in botany as an undergraduate is that there are many, many thousands of year old traditions around the world as using plants as remedies for things. And, you know, some of it there's little evidence that there's a scientific or biological basis for these plants working as remedies. You know, there's old traditions like, well, if the leaf of the plant has three lobes, it looks like a liver, it must be good for your liver. Mm. You know, walnuts look like your brain, they must be good for your brain. So right? that doesn't, that sounds like some kind of plant phenology. And... Exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, but some of these things, you know, some of these traditions have been alone for a long time because there really is something to them. And I thought that, you know, Nick mentioned aspirin. Aspirin is a great example of a natural product that we use in modern day times to treat aches and pains. But in fact, more than half of our current um, pharmaceutical compounds are derived from natural compounds. So it's not always the case that a natural plant-derived compound is safe and ready to use repeatedly by millions of people for whatever ailment, but perhaps with a little bit of chemical tweaking in the lab, you can make that compound that you're starting from more potent or more safe or whatever it is, right? And plants and bacteria and other living organisms can manufacture these really complicated chemical compounds that are really difficult to synthesize in a lab. Um, We haven't yet figured out how that biochemistry works, right? Hmm. So it's much easier to start from the plant or the bacteria or whatever it is and go from there rather than trying to synthesize it from chemicals in a test tube, right? (laughs) So there's a genus within the sunflower family that includes the plant that we use to make the hallucinogenic compound in absinthe, and it also includes Artemisua annua, which is the sweet wormwood, and in Chinese it's called Qinghao, which is the yellow-flowered Um, plant and in China it just grows like a weed like out of the cracks of the roads and people farm this stuff and it's currently our 
frontline, most efficacious, least resistance drug to treat malaria. Really? Really. Huh. And the reason that we, in modern times, discovered this is that in the 1960s, when China was getting involved in the Vietnam War, for obvious reasons, they were looking for an efficacious anti-malarial drug. And so Mao Zedong issued a top-down order to thousands of scientists across the country called Project 523, in which they were going to look for um, treatments for malaria. So there's this three-pronged thing. Some of the scientists were looking for ways to prevent people from getting malaria in the first place. Uh, some of them were going to try to, to create anti-malarial drugs de novo, biosynthetically, in the lab. And some of them were assigned to look through the thousands of, you know, texts that are hundreds and thousands of year old, years old that describe traditional Chinese treatments for disease. And what they uncovered was that there was this plant, Artemisia annua, that showed up in many, many different treatments for something like recurring fever, which sounds a lot like malaria. And sure enough, the I got to meet the chemists who uncovered this compound and first isolated the compound and figured out what it actually looks like. And their names are Li Ying, Wu Yulin, and one of them actually won the Lasker Prize in 2006 for this discovery, and her name was Tu Yoyo. Um, they think that these scientists are coming up for a Nobel before too terribly long. Huh. Um, so the project was that I got to follow the whole food chain from the farmers who grow the plant in their fields to the brokers who buy the plants off the farmers and sell it to the chemical extraction company. Got to go to the chemical extraction company and they sell it to Novartis. So I got to go to the Novartis plant where they pack it into little pills and neat little boxes that say, you know, made in, made in the People's Republic of China on them. Hmm. And then those folks... Uh, sell this drug largely to the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation, other people like this, um, to distribute it in the places where there's lots and lots of malaria, which is large swaths of the world. And, you know, without the knowledge from these hundreds and thousands of year old texts, we wouldn't have our current most efficacious treatment for malaria. That's really interesting. Yeah. It was an awesome project. <laughs> yeah. How long were you there? I was there for about a month and a half. Okay. Oh it was just gosh. really neat to see, you know, to shake the hands of the people who spend their day in the fields growing the plant and see them, like, spreading it out on the street to dry. And some of them very laboriously take what look like enormous brooms and beat the leaves off the dried branches. And other people <laughs> just lay them in the road and let cars drive over them to knock all the leaves off, oh, really? which is fantastic. <laughs> and then they bag up very all these clever. loose leaves and sell them. <laughs> Sell them to Novartis, who extracts the chemical to put them into these pills. It's really wow. great to see how the whole chain, chain fits together. Do the, do the people growing the plants, do they know where, the, where this is going, what it is for? Um, I think for the most part, sort of the difficult lesson in this project was that, you know, you always want these malaria drugs and these drugs that treat these diseases for people in places where there's not a lot of money. You want them to be as cheap as possible. Right, but it turns out that the farmers who are growing the plants back in China are just as poor as the people who need the treatments. Mm. And so I think for the most part, the reason people grow the plant in China is that they can get a reasonable, they can get a better price for this plant than they can for, say, tobacco. But if the price of the plant drops, then they switch back to growing tobacco. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of economics there. I there's guess. a lot of economics involved. And one thing you might have noticed from my 
description of the project is that there's a lot of middlemen involved, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, there's these brokers who come to the farmers and gather up all the leaves and, and you know, they take their cut, mm-hmm. right? And then they go to the extraction company, the extraction company takes their cut, somebody else buys it from the of artists and so on and so on, right? Um, I think now actually there's a company in North Bay that's getting bioengineered yeast to produce the chemically active compound in the artemisinin plants, mm-hmm. which is both um, fantastic and a little bit scary for all the people in this in mm-hmm. this current food chain, right? Right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of a... Actually, here's one, one thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, um, so you've gone a long way from, you know, studying pilfering, pilfering in squirrels and the production of anti-malarial drugs, and now you're looking at um, how the reward system works in rats mechanistically and how we can connect it to human, um, to human, um, neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as you are, you're sort of coming towards the end of your graduate school experience. Do you, do you have thoughts for other graduate students about how to sort of find your way intellectually in this sort of very broad arena of what is possible in science? What do you do to follow your interests in science? Yeah, well, I think part of part of finding the right question to study is that your motivation almost can't be to solve the enormous question that's associated with it. You know, so if your motivation for studying risk-seeking in rats is that you're going to solve risk-seeking in humans and you're going to implement genius policy that makes people make more rational decisions about their money and about their day-to-day lives, like you're going to burn out on that, right? It's just such a big question. You can't do it alone, right? And a lot of science is done in, you know, small niche labs at this point where you're just going to be working on a small part of that. So you want to be looking for something where just talking about it, just talking about the basics of what you're actually doing in your tiny day-to-day experiments brings you joy and excitement, Mm -hmm. then that's probably a better bet than the question you think is going to save the world. Hmm. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Brains and Bourbon. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. So uh, come have a drink with us next week when our guest will be Lucy O'Brien, a new assistant professor of molecular and cellular physiology here at Stanford. Uh, Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Nick Weiler, Julia Turan, and myself, Ada Yee. You can find all of the past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, Neurotalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurightwest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org.